The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. in history have seen great divisions, with such rifts coming from many sources. The source of healing can be found in the human heart, unless that creates an even greater divide, such as cannot be bridged. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and blown-out match, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station of underappreciated films. Tonight's symposium discusses David Lean's 1970 romantic epic Ryan's Daughter, inspired by Flaubert's Madame Bovary, and starring Sarah Miles, Robert Mitchum, Christopher Jones, Leo McKern, John Mills, and Trevor Howard. My guest is Simon Guerrier, and you join us in our recording booths, one of them quite close to the sea. Hello, Simon. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? I'm rather well, thank you. How are you? I am good. A bit hot. It's a very hot day here in uh, sunny South London, but otherwise good. It's a very hot day here on the sunny South Coast as well. Um, not as brutal as it was yesterday, fortunately. Yeah, it's more Lawrence of Arabia than Ryan's daughter, I think. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, speaking of which, what can you tell me about David Lean? Uh, well, I live currently not far from the David Lean Cinema in Croydon. Um, oh. And uh, I'm a great fan of his work. I um, remember vividly watching Lawrence of Arabia with my grandfather, probably one bank holiday. Um, and my grandfather had known, my grandfather had served with people who had known Lawrence. So I got a bit of a running commentary. Oh. Um, and uh, I, I then uh, got very into Lean's early work. So I love, absolutely love Brief Encounter um, mm. and This Happy Breed and um, his Dickens adaptations and things. Um, so, yeah, so this was a bit of a... a I, I hadn't actually seen Ryan's Daughter. Um, really? I got, I got up to Zhivago, uh, but I hadn't seen this one. Um, so, yeah, it was glad, I was glad to have the excuse to do so. Did you have much in the way of preconceptions before you watched it? I knew it had not been considered a success, and I knew from... There's an interview, is it the South Bank show that's included on one of the David Lean box sets where he talks about his disappointment with it and, and how the New York critics ravaged him and that sort of stuff. So I think, I think I'd just not been in any great rush to see it because, um, it, you know, it's three hours long and it's a three-hour film that, that even the director says is not very good was not exactly... <laughs> it's not selling it. Yeah, yeah, I was not enticed. Um, and I think I'd seen bits of it. Uh, I think I may have sit, sat through sort of 20 minutes or so on the TV. Um, 
but yeah, it, it, so I went in with pretty low expectations. Um, and uh, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. Oh, good. Um, well, it's worth noting the, the position that Lean was in at the time career-wise. He'd started out, uh, I think he like a, he'd worked his way up from nothing. So he'd started out as a T-boy or something, hadn't he? Yeah. Uh, into the editorial department, working as an editor, and then in the early 40s, getting work as a director. Um, his, I think Brief Encounter was his, his major breakthrough. Yeah, so he'd worked with Noel Coward. Uh, um, and Noel, Cow- Noel Coward was working on a, on a number of films during the war. And Lean basically worked alongside Coward and then was editing and then was directing. Um, and so by the end of the war, he's directing two films written by Coward, uh, This Happy Breed and Brief Encounter. Um, so, that, yeah, there's a sort of... Um, Lean is very... He's, he's quite interesting in the interview that I watched with him talking about Coward's relation, their, their working relationship, because there was obviously a lot of respect and Coward obviously did a lot for him, hmm. but Lean didn't seem to want to say that it was all in Coward's gift. That, yeah, I think he, he felt he'd earned his way up. Might it be fair to say there's a, there was a partnership there of um, Coward's artistic talent with Lean's technical know-how and that they were able to feed from each other and um, work separately along those terms. Yeah, I think, I think their working relationship is amazing. And there are some really, what you say about the technical aspects, there's some, there's some really impressive technical elements of those early films, like the, the slow pan through the house in This Happy Breed. Is amazing that that, that 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 last shot of the empty house as they're leaving is is really powerful and it's not it's not something you would do on stage and Coward was predominantly a stage writer I would argue um, and a lot of his films have that kind of theatrical feel they have that kind of feel of being on a set on a on a fixed set um, so yeah I. I I would want to investigate further, but yes, yeah, I, I definitely think there's something very uh, interesting. And by the time you get to Lean doing Great Expectations, the sort of visual element of it has is, is completely gone beyond what he, the kind of uh, 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 anyone for tennis sort of elements mm. of that kind of stage work. Um, yeah, it's so expressionistic and, and, and rich and what you know you the thing about lean it's very early on you have that kind of sense of widescreen spectacle um well his he has his two uh dickens adaptations in the late 40s great expectations and oliver twist there's a story about oliver twist i love which is that um uh, alec guinness's uh, performance as fagin was so grotesque that the film was banned in israel for being anti-semitic but it was also banned in Egypt for not being anti-Semitic enough. God. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean... Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I... I don't know. I don't know. I mean, for a film made when it was, given what was going on in the world at the time, I think, yeah, there are all... That, that's a very... Uh, What's weird? It's a very problematic. Uh, yes. 
performance. I think, I think terrifying, and and they've really gone for it. But uh, was that wise? But then you know, this is a perennial issue that Guinness had, and he had it on. Um, what's the last film they did pa- together? Pas- Passage, Passage to, to India. Yeah, where he browns up. Yeah, yeah, and you just see the same, the same kind of uh, disquiet about about exactly you know mm. i yeah i and it's in you know they, they do the same thing in lawrence of arabia and stuff but i think yeah that 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 oliver twist is very uh, uh surely they must have discussed it surely it must have been in the air um how Possibly. could it not be um i think it's interesting to note that as far as i know there's only been one version of oliver twist from a jewish director which is roman polanski's version Mm-hmm. where Fagin is played under, I think, fairly light and possibly no prosthetics by Ben Kingsley. And it's a very faithful characterization to the book, but they never say he's Jewish. Mm. And I think that's probably the way around it. You can make him as horrible and evil as grotesque as possible, as long as it's separate from his ethnicity. Yeah, I I mean, I, I know people who've argued that Fagin in the book is a by the end, especially, is quite a sympathetic figure. You you certainly feel when Oliver goes to see him for the last time, you really feel for him. I think um, the BBC's adaptation that Terence Dix produced in the uh, mid nineteen eighties is pretty good for how it. As, as I remember, it's a while since I saw it, but um, but yeah, it's it's. I mean. Uh, I don't want to. I certainly don't want to defend it, but but yes, there's there's definitely a sort of spectrum of of how how he is betrayed and what the sort the sort of racist stereotypes you go for. Um, but the lead one, they just they just go for them. Yeah. Um, and I mean, he looks like a molten candle a lot of the time. It, well, it's yeah. It's just I I don't know. I don't know. I I find that. Yes, I, I really like Lean, but there's all sorts of things I find very troubling. Mm. Um, and that, that probably, the most, uh, probably the most obvious of, of, the, of the issues I have with his work. Well, during the early part of the 50s, he had a string of successful films. But later in the 50s, and then for the rest of his career, he moved into the, the, the arena of the epic. And each of his films was bigger and more expansive and more lavish than the last. None of them clock in under two and a half hours. And they had variable levels of success. Um, Bridge on the River Kwai was an Oscar-winning smash. Lawrence of Arabia was even bigger. Dr. Zhivago had not the most positive critical reception, as far as I recall, but was still quite a big hit. And on the back of all of that, he looks for a new project, Initially, Robert Bolt, his regular writer, pitches him an adaptation of Flaubert's Madame Bovary. Um, And Lean reads the script, but is not enthused about it, and suggests instead switching the setting from France to somewhere else, like India or maybe Ireland. And the result is a complete rewrite of the story that turns into Ryan's daughter. Mm -hmm. Very loosely adapted from... Madame Bovary. Have you read Madame Bovary? No, 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 I haven't. No, nope, neither have I. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and remixes some of the characters, but also adds in all this background about 
um, the uh, the Easter Rising with a with a, a World War One setting. It's it's a war movie that has almost no war in it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, the war itself is ever present. I, I mean, think there's a there's a so one of the things that you get with when he's doing Dickens or when anybody is doing Dickens or Victorian London is how much the background, the Victoriana, becomes foreground, how much it kind of takes over. And you can see that that's a delicate balancing act. And I think the same thing is true of the epic, where the landscape becomes what the film is about. And you can see, you know, the vistas in Lawrence of Arabia and in... uh, and of, of, of the Russian steppes in, in uh, um, Zhivago, where, where, I mean, they were filmed in Spain, weren't they? But, but the, the sort of widescreen action, it's, it's kind of like a Western, you know, these huge mm. vistas of landscape. Um, and that, that obviously makes it a cinematic experience. It's, it's at an age where cinema is vying with television. And it's, so you're doing things that television just can't, handle it's it's not a it's not a film that really sits well on the small screen um and and the lush music and all of that sort of stuff is playing to the technical side of what cinema is and what being in a cinema does you get the same things with james bond films that also have spectacular locations and stuff of going where haven't we been what what haven't we done so yeah i can see him kind of going after the desert and after Russia, where else can we go that has a landscape that looks opulent and different and interesting? And Ireland is affordable and is also, you know, panoramic and exciting and stuff. Mm. And you can do period, a period setting without having to dress a lot of it. So it's relatively, relatively inexpensive uh, for all they're going to spend a fortune doing it. Yes. Um, the, the, the issue with that is what that means is that your landscape, your setting is dictating the story you tell. And so whereas Lawrence of Arabia and Zhivago uh, are about these monumental moments in history, these huge battles, this revolution, this, this you know, both of them are about revolutions in, in one deg- to one degree or another. The weird thing about Ryan's daughter is it's not. That kind of stuff is all going off at a distance and we're told about it. We don't go to Dublin. We don't see what's happening in Dublin. We're told about it. So it all feels a bit disconnected. And I also think what's very odd about that is that when this film was being made, you've got the troubles starting for real. So there's a context of real sectarian issues in Ireland and the film is kind of doing this rather peculiar love affair at a remove from the politics and I I just it's a it's a very odd decision to make and and I think it's because they the landscape is dictating the story that they tell rather than is there what is the conflict here what is the what is the what is what is the story you want to tell here um, and yeah, I think I think Ryan's daughter would be. I think I think the, the the different elements of it would probably work better if it was set within Dublin or the city, 
And so there was a more direct connection to the politics and the history that it's ostensibly dealing with. I, d mm. I don't, you know, that's, that's what I kind of feel. When the film was being promoted, um, it was explicitly being labelled a story of love. Mm. The, f the focus of the, uh, the promotion and the production itself was the, the triangle between Rosie Ryan, Charles Shaughnessy and Major Dorian. And I, I, I think you're exactly right. I, I did make a note about how the, the change in scale and the change of uh, emotional scale from Brief Encounter had gone. And you're right, there is a switch that before the characters' emotions had been dictating the environment or, be, or been reflected in the environment. But now the environment is being reflected in the emotions. So the environment is taking the lead. And it's and it's dwarfing what should be a relatively simple story. Yeah, I think that there's also a weird thing about Rosie's character is that she's a bit of an outsider in the village anyway. So she goes to school with the other villagers, you know, at, at, uh, she falls for the teacher and stuff, but she's not one of... She's not part of a gap. It's not like her friends turn on her because she's fallen for the teacher. She's not part of that group anyway. The, the other villagers, she doesn't, she seems to be at a remove anyway. So it's oddly, it's, a, it's an oddly unengaging sort of set of circumstances that she, she, she's on the periphery from the start. And, you know, the, the film begins with her, um, chasing her umbrella across the, the hillside or, or whatever. Um, and you do get that kind of feeling that she's, she's separate as it is. And I think that's the, that's the problem that the film has, of this, this kind of... Um, that she's a misfit. And, and maybe that's what they want, that, that you know, how do, how do misfits um, navigate that, that kind of social complexity mm. uh, of village life? But... It does, it does mean everything's a bit disconnected. Um, and there's a lot of just wandering about on the hillsides. And, yes. You know. um, and it, doesn't, it really doesn't need to be three hours long. Um, there's, there's just not enough to... There's, to, not to, enough, to, to... there's not enough movie in this movie. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> basically. Um, well, it starts... Well, it's, it, it, as you were saying, it's... It's a very old-fashioned type of epic because it has the overture at the start and uh, the intermission halfway through. And we're introduced to a couple of the other main characters early on. Uh, Michael, the village idiot. Yeah. Another characterization that's aged fantastically well. <sighs> yes. Um, and um, the local priest, Father Hugh Collins, played by Trevor Howard. A role written for Alec Guinness who turned it down because, as a devout Roman Catholic, he had a lot of issues with how the character had been written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Trevor Howard was in Brief Encounter, mm. playing the adulterous uh, Alec. And um, I find that informs my sort of viewing of uh, Ryan's daughter, because... That mean because he's quite a, a worldly priest for yeah. all he's for all he's like in, 
imposing the moral thing, the, the moral code. He's quite worldly about what is involved in marriage and what is involved in the goings on between a husband and a wife. Um, it's quite yes, I can see why Guinness would have issues with the, the sort of Catholicism of it because it's it's quite an odd. He's quite an odd Catholic priest. Um, there's a, there's a level of um, pra pragmatism, I think, is the word. Hmm. Uh, he's he's tough, but he's quite reasonable. And as you say, he is he is the local voice of authority, and people are genuinely scared of him. Yeah, yeah. Um, towards the end, during the mob scene, he manages to break up a huge mob on his own. Because yeah. people are so terrified of him. And he's a very imposing figure. And I can't imagine Guinness having that same... Um, or projecting that same power in the character. I mean, I, I'm sure you will now be able to point to three different performances by Guinness where he can do that. But... Um... I think there's something of that in The Bridge Over the River Kwai when he rallies the men into working on the, on the bridge. Um, but yes, it would be very different. Major Nicholson in in Kwai strikes me always as a very fragile figure that he's putting up this front of strength because inside he's very not weak but vulnerable. Yeah. And at the end, that's broken and 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 he breaks. Whereas Collins is like granite all the way through. He's almost yeah. he, you know he's almost like a you know starts fights with people. <laughs> Um, because he's because he's so tough. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's that toughness, I think, uh, forged by the uh, by the surroundings. Mm. Um, the film was shot and set on the Dingle Peninsula in Southwest Ireland, and I actually have a family connection there because my grandmother's family is from Tralee, which is about twenty miles away. Oh, okay. So. Um, Given how the uh, the dates work, in theory, any of the children in this film could be playing my grandmother. Oh, lovely, lovely! Wow, how strange. So, yeah. Did did she see the? So film? I've got a personal stake in this now. I've no idea. Yeah, yeah. Did she see it? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I, well, it's 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 an odd one. So I read um, I read the Painted Banquet, which is uh, the autobiography of Jocelyn Rickards, the costume designer on this. Oh, right. And she has, um, she had a number of, uh, of things. F firstly, she had just made Alfred the Great in Ireland, which had gone on for months. Oh. So was, um, yes, was hesitant to take up this uh, film, not least because she and Lean did not get on brilliantly. Uh, and she talks about him being a perfectionist and being very difficult and the arguments they had on set. And when uh, uh, Robert Mitchum defended her to lean, that only made things worse. And you oh. know, th this kind of this thing. But, that, you know, that it took almost a year to film Ryan's Daughter. And they're out there in the middle of nowhere. And, and a bit like with famously with Lawrence Arabia, where, where how do you wash things? How do you supply all the clothes for everyone? You're, you're facing the same problems. How do you get stuff? So she's talking about um, how they would source costumes and capes and stuff from the local tinkers and just get, you know, supplies and stuff. And watching it, you can see how the, the sort of poverty of what people are wearing and the, the things. 
And her idea was that the fashions would be sort of 50 years behind where the mainland was, where, where, where what people would be wearing in Dublin at the time or, or, or whatever, right. um, because of the, the poverty there. And, you know, and that's just how do you how do you suggest the historical setting? But it means that when you get the remarkable outfits that Sarah Miles wears when she goes to her assignations and there's that that you know what she's wearing when she's riding the horse and then that extraordinary yellow dress that she wears in what seems to be a dream sequence but might not be um it's it's like a statement of of something that, that there's a um there's a conscious decision there to do something remarkable and eye-catching because it's in total contrast and complete again completely separates her from the world of everybody else um, you know her clothes are clean whereas everybody else is caked in mud and dirt and you know even um, Trevor Howard has sand all over his cassock and you know mm. one of the things I noted when I was watching it is the portrayal of Ireland was it gave me pause because the the people of the town are are poor i mean the, the, that makes it it's made very clear but they seem to be only you know a, a couple of scenes away from you know carrying pigs under their arms and that kind of thing mm-hmm. and it, it did seem a little bit overly stereotypical of ireland being the third world which but there, I mean, there is a context to it, as you say, about you know, thinking about people. You know, it's taken this long for things to filter down to the provinces because Dingle is so far from Dublin. So there is a logic to it. But also at the time, portraying rural Ireland like that, just as the troubles were starting, was not ideal. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things. Where it's a very patrician view, isn't it? That's the that's the um, issue. I think I think what's what what you can contrast that with, though, is how it represents masculinity, which I think is what makes this film so interesting. That it's continually undercutting sort of traditional ideas of masculinity. So you've got the, the soldier with, sh- the, with uh, shell shock who is kind of broken. You've got Robert Mitchum who, rather than servicing his wife, spends the evening pressing flowers. Uh, you've got the way that she, that, that an awful lot of what we see of him and of the, the British officer is through Rose's view, so it's it's a film that uses the female gaze. I mean, there's that there's that amazing scene where uh, Robert Mitchum is working in the garden with his shirt off, and when he comes in for something to eat, she doesn't want him to put his shirt on again. No, and you go, that's that's such a um, it's it's so it's so perfectly telling of the disconnect between them and and what she wants and what he's failing to pick up on and all of this kind of stuff um and yet it's all from her perspective it's all from her uh it's all about how she sees the world and and what she wants from it which is 
I think is quite interesting, given that the title is that she's, you know, it's not her name, it's Ryan's daughter. It's her, you know, it's her relationship to her dad. That's how she's seen in the village. That's what they call her. So, so there are these kind of um, complexities in the, in the framing of the story, I think, which I just found really interesting. Um, and, and then her dad is weak and doesn't get involved. The, the uh, priest who is the, the, as I was saying, is the, the sort of moral authority is oddly pragmatic, is oddly doing things that are not within the strictures of the moral code. Um, you know, he hits her at one point, which is, you know, extraordinary. Yeah. Um, but also he's is trying to find a way to, to um, mediate between the different parties and stuff. Um, I think I think all of the stuff about whether the um, I want to call him Vandervolk. That's I can't can't get Barry that out Fo- of Tim O'Leary played by Barry Foster. Yeah, yeah, Barry Foster. Uh, so when Vandervolk is is, is <laughs> up to his uh, terrorist activities uh, or, or his his revolutionary activities, um, again, there, there's you could play him as a hero or you could play him as a villain. But actually, there's something much more complicated going on there. There's something much more nuanced. And I just, yeah, I just find that. I mean, that's where that's where this is a really interesting film. Just it, just in the way those those complexities exist in, as you say, what is otherwise a rather cliched view of an Irish village. That 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 the sort of again, it's that thing that the setting and the character stuff seem to be doing different things. Um, and and I think the script is more nuanced than the visuals. I think. So, do you feel it would benefited would it would have benefited the film if Lean had shrunk his vision down, and so it uh, avoided the huge vistas and um, uh, kept the the focus tight, more like his his earlier much more studio-bound films kept the focus tight on the characters rather than indulging on these long shots of clouds and and people standing on hillsides. I think... you. I mean, certainly... Certainly that stuff... A, it's beautiful. But it's also about character, isn't it? And And... You know that there are there are bits where Rosie's relationship to the to the to the natural world around her and to the environment is similar to um, uh, Julie Andrews spinning on the top of the mountain at the beginning of The Sound of Music. <laughs> it, it, it 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 places her in context, but it also tells you who she is and and her sort of passion and her her love of life. Um, and then she has to run back to the convent and be very meek and small, having been expansive on the hillside. And that, that you know, Rosie's a very similar kind of uh, a character in some ways to, to that. So, yeah, I'm not saying get get rid of it all. I just think it it threatens to dominate. It it's not pulling in the service of the story. I th- I think that's the that's the issue. And I just think it could be shorter. Um, yes. And I I feel that. It's an extravagant movie, but it's also very, very self-indulgent. And 
yeah, may, maybe maybe somebody should have gone. Do we really need to do this? Do we really need to? You know, but I, that's that's kind of the. Uh, do we really need another shot of this hillside? Haven't we had those? Um, yeah, that that that's kind of what I I I I, I did watch it in three viewings because I found it quite slow. You know, slow and ponderous and mm. my you know there, there, there's loads of interesting things in it but i found it quite an ordeal to get through i think it took me six viewings to get through which wow. watched, i watched in half hour episodes oh nice um well as you're saying about the the title having been ryan's daughter specifically that was something like the seventh title that they'd gone through um it was originally titled michael's day Okay, um, and other titles they uh, listed were "Circle of Gulls," "The Storm," "Wind of the Sea," "Rising Tide," and "Coming of Age," and all of those were rejected by the studio because they didn't actually mean anything. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. Calling it Ryan's daughter, I think it it describes her in relation with other men yeah because that's the defining trait that she has i think throughout the film is the the relationships she has with the men in the village her father um charles shaughnessy major dorian and also michael Mm -hmm. so that's it's almost like that's that's the title of the first chapter of this story ryan's daughter and she develops over the course of the story and by the end is perhaps going to become herself separate from any of the others if uh, as is suggested she and Charles are going to separate once they arrive in Dublin yeah 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 it's it's also it's also about how she's how she's seen because she's seen by the villagers as Ryan's daughter because he's the landlord and so he's the sort of centre of the community hmm. but you know, when I said earlier that, that we get a whole, there are whole elements of the film that we see from her perspective. The point of Michael is we see her from his perspective. And he has this, for all the nuance and the, the complexity, he doesn't get that. He only sees things in very simple terms. Um, and he sees very straightforwardly that she's a good person because she's nice to him. And what I think... What I expect they're trying to do with him. I I wonder how much because I know Lean, you know I know I know Lean was part of that that tradition of of. Well, I, I'm not sure that's the right word, but in the fifties and and sixties, you've got a, a kind of Western appreciation of of what um, Kurosawa is doing in Japan in his films and stuff, and I wonder how much. The idea is to tell the story, or, or how much there is an element of telling the story from the point of view of a, of a bystander, like what happens in the Hidden Fortress, and whether uh, so. So the, the 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 Hidden Fortress famously uh, there's two characters called uh, Tahe and Matashimi, I think I mean, I've probably got that wrong. But they obviously become the, the archetypes that C-3PO and RTD2 are in, in the first Star Wars film, where they're kind of peripheral characters, but they effectively 
watch the events, the, bit, the big events of the story. And I think, I think that's what Michael is supposed to be doing and to simplify the complexities for us because whenever he's there, we know where our sympathies should be. We know where, where our hearts should be. That's the idea. And yet, you know, and, and we see the sort of cruelty and, and um, smallness of the village in the way that they treat him as opposed to her. And yet, again, just because of the scale, because of the size of the film, somehow that gets lost along the way and we kind of pick it up at moments and we certainly pick it up in the final scene. Um, but, but yeah, it's just it's the, the fitting in the landscape and fitting in the epicness mm. means that all of that stuff gets, gets slightly lost along the way, I, I feel. Um, let alone the dodginess of, you know, telling that getting john the the award-winning john mills to play a character like that there's a, there's something this is the <sighs> film for which he won his oscar yeah yeah it's just yeah i i i don't know i don't know i think um yes it's a sympathetic portrayal it's a sympathetic view of the character and stuff our our hearts are supposed to be with him but mm. i find I, I couldn't help feeling a, a, a level of cynicism in what they have done. You know, do, do you think there are shades of uh, Simple Jack? It's, it's also nothing changes for him. You know, that's that's the thing that that, that he's his story is um, he doesn't come to any great new revelation at the end. He's not his circumstances don't change. He is like the characters in Hidden Fortress, like C-3PO and R2-G2, he's, he's, he's upset, but he's ultimately unaffected by the, the, by the plot. And, you know, this is, this is a figure who we see him out in the boat with all the weapons and we see him, you know, exchanging cigarettes with the British officer or whatever. And, and, I don't know, it just... And he, he's I just, in... He's indirectly responsible for the death of Major Dorian, Rosie's yeah. lover, as well. Even though one couldn't blame him directly for it. Yeah, but he, yeah. um, we never see him bear any responsibility or guilt for that, either, either from his own understanding or imposed from other people. I don't know. I find it. I find that. I find that aspect of of the film very uncomfortable, and. I think because, like what you were saying about the sort of cliches of the village, it again feels too cliched. It feels too much like a stereotype. Hmm. Um, and for a film that's kind of exploring people's agency and what, what they are capable... Are they capable of fulfilling their dreams and desires within this closeted and closed community? There's no question of him being able to fulfill anything and i i just find that very uh yeah i i just it just makes me very uncomfortable hmm. well early in the film um it's established that there is a uh, british army garrison near the town and that although the townspeople pay lip service to treating the soldiers fairly they are clearly very very unwelcome mm-hmm. um they drink in the pub but Behind their backs, people are grumbling. And um, Rosie Ryan meets Charles Shaughnessy on the beach. As he's returning from Ireland, he's returned to teach. 
and it's their relationship is established by him having brought back programs from concerts he's attended. Mm-hmm. So they have that shared interest in in higher things and culture, art, music that straight away sets her apart from the, everyone else in the town who's, you know, busy fishing things out of the bog. He's a, he's also escaped. He's, he he represents the outside world, which is mm. what she longs. And and I think those those artistic uh, uh, desires um, are representative of her desire to escape. Um, and it's also established that uh, Charles is a widower. Yeah, and that's interesting because they surely she would know. Surely she would already know, especially if his late wife is buried nearby mm. and they can visit the grave because um, isn't the implication that he was her teacher Rose, Rosie's teacher yeah yeah Yes. so surely she would know that her because it's a small community it's a yeah the, again the, those kind of things are because it's a, you know it's suggesting a tragedy in his life but also that he might be he looking for love again and stuff but Yes, I, 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 my sort of uh, script header, ha- my script header ha- hat is kind of the lights on it are flashing um, at that moment, um, and it's it's all the way of sketching in a backstory and a and, a, and an emotional uh, history for him, um, and that maybe he's a bit vulnerable, maybe he's a bit in need of her, you know, as a kind of cliche, but but. That, that perhaps she can heal his his broken heart and stuff. Mm. But um, is there not uh, uh, inference in some scenes that his first wife was in some way domineering or cruel and um, pushed Charles into sort of retreating further into himself? Not cruel necessarily, but um, just sort of how to how to describe it. Um, Forceful, but I think that's also part of the part of the suggestion that there's something unmanly about Robert Mitchum, or, or mm. not unmanly is that the right word, but but that kind of um, emasculation of him, in, it, and I don't, I, I mean, in the kind of the traditional tropes of masculinity that you would yeah. see in a in a movie. There's there's it's it's actually they they do it in Lawrence of Arabia as well. Um, with with Lawrence, that, that that there are various things where you just kind of go. There's something a bit, you know. Noel Coward famously referred to him as Florence of Arabia. Um, oh yeah. Uh, there's there's something. Um, yeah, I, I I don't want to go too far with this because I think it's quite it's quite subtly done. But yeah, I wonder how much the the what the the, the commentary on the on the the late wife is is playing into that kind of thing because basically um rosie leads him that's that's she takes charge not him um uh robert mitchum um listeners should probably know was one of the most macho of macho actors yeah um he you know he he liked to f- a drink he liked to fight um he was i think one of the first hollywood stars busted for uh marijuana possession he's a, he's yeah and he's amazing in a whole load of films where he plays those tough guys and stuff and i because of trevor howard as the vicar and uh, as the the priest i was thinking of uh, night of the hunter with robert mitchum as the is the villainous 
villainous priest, uh, basically trying to kill some children, uh, which is just the most spectacularly exciting film noir kind of thing. Mm. Um, and and and, and as, you, as you say, it, it's a real, um, it's a really remarkable choice for him, and, and very brave, I would say. Um, but also, yeah, well, you you wouldn't turn it down, would you? It's such a great part. Well, um, the first choice for the role was Paul Schofield. Um, okay. But he was unavailable. George C. Scott, Anthony Hopkins, and Patrick McGowan were all considered. McGowan also being famously wow. a devout Catholic. Gregory Peck uh-huh. lobbied for the role as well. Wow. Um, but um, I, I can... I think McGowan might have been a bit too young. Um, but... Um, yeah, pretty, yeah. Pretty much any of the others. I mean, George C. Scott, I think, would have struggled with the accent. But I think Gregory Peck would have been a very good choice, and it's a very Gregory Peck part. So casting not the hero, but the villain from Cape Fear um, instead is quite a bold move. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's, just one of the, it's just one of those parts where you go, it's, it's a bit like, um, oh, what's the film, the recent film with Jonathan Price playing... Um, Glenn Close's husband, um, the academic. Uh, is it the wife? Yes, yes. And um, the thing that was, there was an interview, I think that Glenn Close gave when it came out, where she was saying there were various actors up for playing the husband, but they had to accept that they were in a secondary position to her character because it's her story and stuff. Hmm. Um and I think I think that's the thing. You have to. This is a this is a really interesting role, but not everyone would do it. I can no. see, I can see, you know, star actors going. This is not for me. Um, so yeah, fair play to Mitchum for doing it, and he's re- he's really good at it. And and it also depends on him, as I say, being the object of her desire, and mm. then being cuckolded. So it's a weird, you know, he's objectified um, in what I would, what I would argue is, is a sort of reversal of, of uh, or at least a twist on the sort of stereotypical um, gender roles. But then that reminds me of Brief Encounter as well and, and the husband uh, uh, in Brief Encounter that, that uh, the wife returns to at the end who, who seems to know what's happened and forgives her. Um, so yeah, Lean, who, uh, how can I put it, had had a, a penchant for ladies. Uh, is that? Yes, his sixth his, wife his, is interviewed on the DVD. Yeah, his his love life was relatively complicated, but but yeah, there's there's something. Um, yeah, it's it's it's. There, there, there's all sorts of complexities going on there that I find very interesting, um, and. And Mitchum is really good. He's he's a uh, he's a. Uh, I can't. I, I you you name all those people who are all very good actors, but I can't see any of them as being as good as he is in this. I think because there is. There is a brooding quality to Charles, which fits Mitchum very well. 
that uh, quiet internalized um, quality that in his other films becomes kind of like a like a, a rolling machismo type of you know, you know rage bubbling up inside, and here it's just someone who is keeping all their emotions inside. But but you know he's he's passive. He presses flowers. He's terrible in bed. He's you know all all of those kind of he's he's rather shy and nervous and stuff. And you just go yeah it's it's a it's a really interesting role for a a leading Hollywood actor to take. Mm. Um, but at that time, it was probably a very good choice where there were senses of previous. Um, uh, types being changed and overturned for him to play a character who was more more gentle, more compassionate, uh, more caring, and someone who is prepared to, for whatever reason, give the give his wife let, allow his let his wife take the lead in the relationship. Hmm. In 1970, that was probably seen as being quite contemporary. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that kind of sensitive—it's a—it's a sensitivity that that feels a bit new manish, doesn't it? Mm. Um, but also, but also, I think I think a lot of the—I mean, the last bit of the film is Trevor Howard putting him on the stagecoach and saying, "It's not a stagecoach, is it? It's just a bus. It's, it's, it's but, a bus. But, uh, <laughs> um, but it might as well be, I think." But but kind of saying there's no certainty, but you've got a bit of doubt, and it's the doubt that might be the thing that that bridges this this division between you. Um, so it's it's all built on this kind of um, insecurity, basically. And and actually, the end of the film is that insecurity might be the good, might be the the beneficial thing. Um, and and. Yeah, so, yeah, really, a really interesting casting choice, and, and I think really successful. The um, the gun runners are introduced as well, uh, Tim O'Leary, as mm-hmm. they're stopped by a policeman as they're crossing the country, and the policeman leaves, but just to make just to be on the safe side, they shoot him in the back. Yeah, yeah, and that's a it's a horrible it's a horrible moment, and and quite. Brutal and and in complete contrast to the rather gentle love affair stuff that's been going on elsewhere, mm. and introduces a level of uh, of threat or you know this kind of undercurrent of violence that that pervades the movie that never really ignites. I think that never really picks up a lot. There's a lot of potential. Uh, well, there is there is the mob scene towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. But but that's not I, I I meant more the kind of sectarian stuff against oh, the, I see. The, the British soldiers. There's that. There's the, 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 the political violence rather than yeah. personally motivated, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the scene where where O'Leary gets apprehended, and and there's the standoff with the soldiers and the the townspeople and stuff. But again, that's rather undercut. Um, it's not a riot. It's not a you know one person is shot. Not not lots of people are shot. Mm. Compare that to Zhivago uh, or, or even Lawrence of Arabia. It's very understated. Um, but yeah, that and, and that. Yeah, O'Leary is a is a. As as I said, there's no there's no sympathy for him. From 
our point of view for all that the villagers are sympathetic towards him. You know, he's a hero to them, but not to us, mm. I think. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a kind of a, 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 a what's the word, a, a positioning of him there. Um, yeah, I, 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 and I think I think more what's interesting then is that O'Leary goes to the pub and gets on with Ryan, gets on with Leo McKern. And what he suggested is that the revolutionaries, that the, 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 uh, uh, O'Leary and his people think Ryan is on their side and the British officers suggest that Ryan is giving them information and he's kind of caught between the two of them and the the, the ship breaking scene where they go out in the storm which is ast astonishing and, and heaven alone knows how they managed to film it safely I suspect they just didn't um, but I was watching that going how on earth have you done this um, not... bolting cameras to the rocks and then just throwing Leo McKern into the sea yeah yeah but but that 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 is where you get who he is and what side he's on I think and then by the end of the film there's the bit where his daughter is is uh, mobbed by the crowd with their shears and he keeps out of it he he backs away and again you know that kind of uh, 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 you're never quite sure where he where he stands or what what he's in it for um but he's yet again another what's the word sort of passive uh indirect male figure um mm. and and it, it's interesting because because it's his name in the title and yet it's not his story at all um no. I mean, I was thinking that, firstly, given that Patrick McGowan was mooted as a potential co-star, that would have been an, an odd reunion, given that they had quite a bit of tension between them. Um, but um, McKern is uh, uncharacteristically a little more muted than you might expect. I mean, I've, mm. I've recently been re-watching Ron Paul of the Bailey, or watching it mm. for the first time, rather. And he's fantastic in that, and he's you know, wonderfully charismatic and rambunctious and steals every scene. But here he's much quieter, more reserved, a much uh, sneakier and, um, say duplicitous, that's, you know, that's built into the character, but he's, he's much more, he's someone who profits by keeping himself to himself and showing only the jolly publican side to the general public. Yeah, Perhaps. and you kind of think there are a whole load of ways in which you could have a better sense of who he is. So, for example, we could see him shortchanging the officers, you know, pouring them short measures mm. of drinks, and they don't notice, but the villagers in the pub do, and kind of are pleased with that. Or we could see the opposite, which is that he makes sure that he doesn't diddle the officers because they're still his customers. Or we could see in the way that he deals with his daughter's wedding that he he could be, um, you know, he could be upset at the wedding in the way that John Mills is. Um, and so there's a whole load of things where he could play more of an active role. We could have more of a sense of him. And as you say, Leo McKern is such an uh, uh, 
you know, such a, a, a scene stealer. I mean, that's part of the part of why he and Patrick McGoon fell out because Liam McKern was having such a laugh stealing scenes and stuff. Um, and there's none of that. And and my suspicion would be that is because if he did if he did do any of that, Lee just cut it out. Um, mm. And yeah, because he's really not in it a lot. Um, in three hours, how how much screen time does he actually get? Not a lot. No. You know, Tre- Trevor Howard has more of a role in it. Michael has more of a role in it. Well, McKern is billed something like fifth or sixth, so yeah. he's uh, the film seems to be aware that he he's not a main character, even if he's his name comes first in the title. Yeah. Um, Rosie and Charles get married. Yep. And the whole town is having a huge celebration with a big street party and everything, while it, the the whole thing. I mean, it feels slightly wicker man with. Yeah. Yeah. Rosie and Charles going up to her room over the pub for their first night together and people cheering as they turn off the light and then singing and dancing in the street and it's all a little bit sort of pagan rites of spring. And th- yeah, and throwing chicken corn at the window and, you know, uh, and it, it, that's such a great, it's so good, all of that is just so brilliantly observed and all of the stuff where she, she you know, is led through the the crowd and all of the stuff of her being in bed staring up at the ceiling and it it being over all too quickly so it's this massive anticlimax and and all of that is uh is is great and tells you everything about her world Ooh. and her expectations and her desires and the oh, the crap. failure of reality to meet her uh, expectations um yeah so so i think the the, the wedding all of that, all of the, the, the way the village behaves, the way that she behaves, the way that Robert Mitchum behaves is perfect. It's all so, it tells you everything. It's, it's what I really like that this film often does is not tell you what's going on, but lets you see it. And you, 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 can, you can tell exactly what she feels and what she wants from all the things that aren't said. Um, and I think I think that that all works really well, um, and it's just horrible, isn't it? You know, the, mm. the villagers throwing. You know, what is the significance of the chicken corn that they throw at the window? Is it you know some kind of suggestive? I don't know. I don't know. Um, so they they settle down into married life and they move into the schoolhouse, and that. I like sets Charles as an outsider because the schoolhouse is right out of town. Yeah. The town, incidentally, was purpose-built for the film. Right. Okay. Um, and they settle into a routine and they seem to be quite happy. Charles teaches, they listen to music, they have quiet nights at home. And I've written separate but together. They are... That they're married and they're living together, but they are effectively still leading separate lives because Charles is so meek in a way. Mm. He he doesn't share any of his uh, his passions that he has with Rosie. She's left to her own devices. So yeah. they are, you know, not much more than housemates in a way. Yeah, and he's just not. 
satisfying her physical desire. That's that's basically what that is about. And and him with his shirt off doing the gardening and stuff. That that couldn't be more plain. Mm. What she wants and what he is failing to to supply. And amidst all this, um, she meets um, Father Collins, who advises her not to nurse her wishes. Mm-hmm. Just as a new. British Army officer arrives in town, Major Dorian, played by Christopher Jones. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting because Christopher Jones did not do a lot of film work after this. Um, you know, his his IMDb entry is not no. huge. He doesn't speak a lot in this film. He is he's eye candy basically. We we see him through her eyes, and he's a. He's a pretty thing, you know. That's 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 what he that that's the purpose he serves. It's it's a really interesting. It's not like they chat each other up. There's no sparky dialogue. There's no uh, none of that. It's all about what they see. And and whereas the relationship with Robert Mitchum has all been about the music and the art and the the kind of quiet polite conversation they have this is a this is a very different this is much more physical uh, uh, and yeah yeah passionate and part of the part of the thing of that comes out of what she wears so when they go um horse riding uh uh rickards jocelyn rickards in her book says you know he put her in a dark green riding skirt crimson silk taffeta flounced petticoat vermilion blouse matching silk scarf heavy fringe black chenille shawl and an old black bowler hat. And even she was thinking, could Ryan's daughter afford that? Yeah. Um, where do these clothes come from? Because they're so different from everything else. They're, they're sumptuous. They're rich in colour. They're strong colours. They're bold. Um, and that is... But it's a it's a real statement of intent, and those clothes, a bit like what I'm saying about Julie Andrews doing a twirl on the mountain, those clothes are telling you everything mm. about what is going on. And um, later, you get the bit where they're walking on the beach, and it, and it feels a bit like a dream sequence because he's in full dress uniform, and she's in um, the sulphur yellow chiffon dress, which, um, as as uh, uh, Rickard says. There's no other yellow in the in the film. She'd kept that out of the palette to make that scene so striking. Oh, that's clever. That's very clever. And and what I love about that is it feels like that's a dream because it's so opulent. It looks like something like out of Sergeant Pepper. Mm. You know, that 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 bright color. And yet when when um uh when Robert Mitchum walks across the beach after following in their footsteps is Robert Mitchum who follows in the footsteps yeah. and pieces together what's happened. Um, the the sort of realisation is that we know, we follow him deducing the clues. And without again, without anything being said, we follow what is going on and what he is doing. But also it means that that dream sequence is real. I, I like that sequence. Or, 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 a, or a version of it is. Or, so, or that something has happened. That, uh... My reading of it is that he, based on these things that he's seeing, he's piecing together what he thinks happened. So we're seeing his, his train of thought, his 
uh, impression of what's happened, which is why we have that yeah. fantastic visual of Rosie and Dorian together, and then a short distance away, ten yards maybe, Charles is just standing there watching them. Yeah. Because it's it's not quite a dream sequence, but it's not quite real. It's that yeah, yeah. odd yeah, half yeah. and half. So he's watching his own... Um, his, he's watching his own fantasy, standing inside it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, I, th- I thought that was that was sensational. So well done, and so and then you know just a few minutes later, because there's then the kids on the beach, but also where are um, the real wife and her lover and stuff, and that that kind of um, disconnect between the way he has imagined it and the reality of it, and 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 we never quite know what happened and what. What happened, you know, the suggestion is that they went to the cave, but we never quite know. So it's the dots are not quite joined up. So it's all in our heads mm. as well. You know, the, uh, yeah, that's that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Lean is leaving a lot for the audience to fill in the gap themselves deliberately. Yes. Yes. Even at, even at three hours, he's still leaving stuff out. <laughs> yeah. Um, the role of Major Dorian was... Uh, actually written for Marlon Brando. Uh, Gosh, who okay. agreed to take the role, but then had to drop out because of other commitments. Um, Peter O'Toole, Richard Harris and Richard Burton were all considered. Wow. But then uh, David Lean saw a film, The Looking Glass War, which co-starred yeah. Christopher Jones, and was so impressed by him and his performance that he cast him straight away without even meeting him because he reminded him of a young Marlon Brando or James Dean. And it was only when they started working together that he realised that Jones had actually been dubbed in The Looking Glass War. (laughs) And he actually had quite a weak, thin, slightly higher voice, which was not appropriate for the character. So the result was rewriting all his scenes to remove as much dialogue as possible. One of the early scenes where he's talking with uh, Captain Smith, played by Gerald Sim. Gerald Sim's doing a lot of dialogue in that scene because he's having to do yeah. his own and Major Dorian's dialogue. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, it's interesting because you could have gone the other way and gone bearing in mind... That he that he is the embodiment of of Rosie's physical desire. You could have gone. He's very pretty, but he's got a funny voice. Yeah, you know. You could have had had people cringing when he opens his mouth. That that kind of you could have got. I think I think that would have worked in in the the way that this film works. Um, but yeah, yeah. How funny! How funny! So for what dialogue he had, he was dubbed by Julian Holloway. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Captain Smith, I think, is a, an interesting character. He's only in a few scenes as um, Dorian's ADC. But he's very open about his own fear. And what you are saying before about un- undercutting traditional masculinity, he's about to go on embarkation leave before being sent off to the Western Front. And he openly admits that he's terrified. And even yeah. refers to himself as being a coward in front of a superior officer. Yes. Because Dorian is 
a a hero. Uh, you know, he's got his, his medal, you know, and he's got a very heroic limp, um, which we later discover was caused by um, hiding during an attack, cowering, cowering in yeah. a trench in terror. And this is this is very much of its time. Um, so the um, Joan Littlewood's uh, theatre in Stratford had done Oh, What a Lovely War uh, in the, I think it's the early 60s, and then there was a film later in the yeah, 60s. Yeah, it came out in 69. And, w- and what they had done was they had talked, because it was a community theatre, they'd talked to a lot of the pensioners, basically, who came to the theatre to watch shows, and they talked to them about what they remembered of the First World War. And an awful, uh, for all the nostalgia about the First World War, there were an awful lot of people who did not have very happy memories, who were still traumatised by the things that they'd experienced. And so you got this thing in the 60s of kind of um, unpicking it and, and the, the kind of lions led by donkeys ideas and, and, and lots of a much more complex idea about the psychology of it as well, because I, the ideas of the psychological effects of, of the First World War and shell shock and, and whatever... Were, were were coming out at the time so bizarrely that is very much of its moment when ryan's daughter was being made um and so feels because it's a film that seems to be set in this sort of fantasy past this kind of uh as we were talking about this kind of cliche of uh irish ruralism that does seem very at odds and 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 it's a really good indication of how different and how much more um, how much more engaged the film could be if we had more of a sense of the outside world. I mean, I, I talked about Dublin and I talked about whatever. That sense of just the man terrified to go to the trenches gives the film something really interesting. It's a, it's a really interesting story. I, I just think it's a shame we don't have more of that kind it's, of thing. It's creating a world outside the frame of the picture. Yes, I think it's it's a bit of reality actually. In there's a, there's a lot of I'm not sure dreamlike is is the right kind of way, but this sort of slushy melodrama of the love affair um, that 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 kind of uh, that kind of gritty reality um, that feel that, that the cowardice feels so real and so horrifying and suggests not just his own fear. But what the other soldiers are going through, what you know, that that kind of context of their world, um, and it's just a shame there's not more of that kind of thing in it. I mm. think. Um, Rosie meets Dorian when he comes to the pub. When Michael is also there, and Michael is swinging his foot against the wooden paneling, um, apparently an imitation of the. Uh, coal-fired generator at the army camp. That's a recurring background sound, this distant chugging noise, and he's bashing his foot against the side of the wall and then this jovial military march starts up while Dorian starts having a breakdown. And there's one thing throughout the film that I felt recurs is this very jovial music that plays at quite inappropriate times. Um, and I wasn't sure if this was a misstep or is it a deliberate contrast. Because of Lean's track record, I'm more inclined to think that it's a deliberate move rather than a mistake. Yeah, yeah. 
I think it's 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 the psychology of it, you know, that 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 is a that is a well known psychological uh, uh, effect of trauma. Mm. That that literally he's triggered by the sound of by by what's what reminds him of a military uh, uh, beat in a in a in music and stuff, and that triggers him and takes him right back to his traumatic experience. That's a that's a I think, but it's also um, it's also that weird juxtaposition of the the sort of wrongness of it is is important. But but I think there's an idea that that we you know we've been talking about the undercutting of masculinity and stuff. It's also undercutting the kind of tropes of of soldiering and brass band music and whatever because that supposedly has one meaning. You know, it's all supposed to be jolly and encouraging and the idea that it isn't is is similarly undercutting that kind of heroic narrative i think rosie comforts him and and brings him out of this this state and they kiss for the first time and it's it's the film's jumping past the idea of them getting to know each other by having this immediate bond Mm -hmm. they're both sort of outsiders within their own communities and as you've said, you know, she, he, she regards him as being um, eye candy or some kind of mm. escape, and perhaps she functions the same way for him. But but that's not where the focus is of the story. Yeah, I think it would be very easy to play out a version of this where they save each other as a result of their affair. Mm. But actually, what the story is about is is about how their affair affects everybody else. I think. Well, and how that then rebounds back on them because Dorian Dorian is yeah. destroyed by it, and uh, Rosie is completely ostracised from the whole community and and loses almost everything. Yeah, do you think Dorian's destroyed by that? I think he's destroyed by his experience in the in the trenches. I think. I don't know. I think. I th- I think it's a combination of factors. Perhaps were it were the, were were he to have had the two separately. I don't think he would have ended up the way he does. He might have been able to cope with just the the trauma of um, his experience. But having this affair and then it ending so badly and with such further trauma, um, I think that pushes him over the edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's not like again. It's a, the fact that we can that we can even discuss that shows that it's it's left quite a lot to the viewer to kind of unpick the. The motivation and stuff, which I think is the right way to do it, but it's um, yeah, it, it it becomes it becomes about the consequences of what they've done rather than about what they've done, which I think you know that's a very soap opera idea. How does everybody else react to what to what they've learned? Um, whereas, you know, you could you could have finished the film with them running away. And escaping, mm. you know that that that, but but that's not what this is. That's not what, um, 
that's not where the interest lies. No. Um, the, the fact that she doesn't escape and has to face the consequences of what she's done and how much people resent her for it. Um, you know, all the stuff about her not being served in the shop is, you know, that's harrowing enough, let alone the shearing uh, towards yes. the end. They, um, they court for a while and um, they go riding together into a, a lavender forest where they have a, a, a rather gauzy filmed uh, sex scene. Yeah. Um, there's some interesting background to that as well because um, Sarah Miles and Christopher Jones did not get on. Um, right. She actually got on very well with uh, Robert Mitchum. Ironically, yeah. and um, to try and make the uh, the love scene a bit more bearable, they uh, decided to drug Christopher Jones's food. Um, <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah, the, the there's some um, there's some odd things about that. Uh, so so you've got. Uh, Sarah Miles stood amongst the lilies as the wind whips through them. So you've got this kind of uh, uh, poetic transferred epithet of, of you know, the, it suggests her inner, inner perspective and stuff uh, and her restlessness. But also um, there's the delicacy of it. So, you know, all the stuff about her noticing the spider's web um, and stuff while, while they're in the middle of this love scene. It's all about the. Um, it's all about the. It's all about the, the, the very gentle nature of, of what's going on. So it's, a, it's it's this extraordinary moment of passion, and yet it's very very tender and, and delicate. And I think I think that's a, again a very um, a very interesting choice to make, uh, given what we've been talking about masculinity and stuff. And then again, it could end there, but it but the the. Um, the intermission comes after she goes home and Mitchum says, you'd never be unfaithful to me, would you? And that's, yeah, that's like a, you know, a, a cliffhanger. Mm. And, and also the fact that he clearly suspects is, is laid in there. Yes. It's, it's a, it's a, uh, I thought that was very well done. Um, so the second half of the film begins with the class's field trip to the beach where yeah. not only does Charles have that fugue moment where he uh, uh, imagines what the tryst between Rosie and Dorian would have been, but there are, there's also lines about uh, looking for salvage on the beach where um, German ships have uh, been wrecked offshore and um, armaments may uh, have, have washed, uh, uh, washed onto the shore. And that's setting up or, or putting into, into the audience's mind the thought of what's actually going to be the main thrust of the second half of the film, the main narrative thrust, at least, which is the, uh, the arms shipments and the storm sequence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think also um, it's really interesting. It's, um, it's where, uh, there's the bit where Michael salutes and that's, the, that's how everybody knows what's going on. Michael's find, found um, Dorian's medal in the cave as well. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and her husband hasn't got one. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's all... Um, I, and what, what, what made me... You know, it's interesting because the, the, the Zhivago is set from... It runs up until 1922. So we're actually overlapping in time with what was going on in both Zhivago and in Lawrence of Arabia. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's very easy to see these as a trilogy. Um, but actually the military kind of stuff, that medal seems so distant. The salute seems so distant, so strange and, uh, and wrong. There's a wrongness about it that kind of underlines that the affair is wrong. Hmm. Um, you know, that's how people react to it. And something else that um, gives Rosie away is that she mentions to Charles that she didn't go to the beach, but she has sand in the brim of her hat. Yeah, yeah. Um, as you mentioned, she's refused service in the shop in town whilst ominous clouds are rolling in and then, and then we have yep. the the storm sequence. Uh, uh, but also we have Tim O'Leary in the pub. Oh yes, of course. So we ha having, so we have we have, you know, as a piece of the storm coming in, is this guy that we know is dangerous, is in the place that we know, and and so the overlap of those threads, um, and I think, um, you know, the cheery music that goes with the guns and stuff is uh like you were saying that that weird kind of juxtaposition of the of the rousing music and the sort of horrific uh, uh nature of the storm um and then that leads directly into the soldiers on the road which is a really tense uh sequence well yes i mean the ending of the the salvage of all the guns that have come off the um the german ship where which is that the the gun runner's truck has become bogged down in, in the sand and the whole the whole village having got all these guns off the shore band together and, and get the truck going again and it's a really triumphant moment and you think yes it's it's being portrayed as great triumph of the, of the villagers helping these gun runners <laughs> so there's an interesting little dichotomy there but then they get to the top of the cliff and the army's waiting for them mm -hmm. and yes it is it is a very tense moment and it could have gone so differently but both sides, I think, know that they can't move. If if either side moves first, it will end very, very, very badly. Yeah, and yeah. no, and no, no one wants to take that risk. Tim O'Leary is the only one who takes action, and the response is that he is shot and wounded, but no one else. And he's, sh and he's shot in the back as was the policeman that he shot as well, which is, a, you know, a, a double oh, thing. Yes. Um, but, but note the treatment that he gets, that, that they pick him up and cart him off and stuff, and he's still defiant. But it, it's interesting because when they ask him if, they want it, if he wants anything, and he says, yes, get out of my country, it's kind of like this bold thing. And then you immediately cut that with what's going to happen to him. And uh, they'll hang him, dear, they'll hang him. Um, is yeah, it's really stark. Mm. Um, again, I thought I thought that was all very well. Um, about the, you know the tensions there, the the uh, uh, you know the shaking of the gun as he as he tries to aim and stuff. All very um, you you genuinely don't know which way any of this is going to go, and I th I just find that really really exciting and interesting. Um, 
And then um, I'm aware we are, like the film, taking our time. <laughs> um, but but yeah, but there's then um, the stuff where she goes out in the night again to romantic music um, with Mitchum knowing full well what's going on now. Um, and then we have this kind of thing where she comes back and he's gone and it's it's a again it's a it's a really uh unexpected uh way for the story to go that suddenly we're worried about what has become he doesn't confront her robert mission disappears and we're left to wonder what he has done to himself and and brief encounter posits itself so the opening scene um set on a station when we come back to later on in the film we realise that as a result of Trevor Howard leaving, um, our, our lead character has considered killing herself. And the reason that she comes in a bit ashen-faced into the cafe is because she's just decided not to and whatever. And I, I think there's something similar going on here. Where the, the, the suggestion is that uh, certainly Trevor Howard's response as the priest seems to be, I've got to find him before he does himself some mischief. Mm. Um, and that, that scene of him in his nightshirt on the beach is extraordinary. Such a, you know, and being, but the vicar being stopped by the officers because he's carrying the bundle of clothes. It's, it's so, so unsettling, I thought. But um, Collins is very sympathetic to Charles and very supportive. Yes. It contrasts nicely because he's been so tough and, and in, in other scenes and here he's kind and supportive and and he doesn't he doesn't blame Rosie as I recall he no he's 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 just sort of giving the support he needs to Charles and not scapegoating his feelings not um pointing to a target and saying that is the reason um while this is happening unfortunately the townspeople arrive at the schoolhouse because they believe that Rosie was the informer who tipped mm-hmm. off the army that um, O'Leary was on the beach. And, of course, the audience knows that it was uh, her father. And and he runs away. Yes, he flees, in, in, and he's the real coward. Yeah, yeah, and leaves her to, take, to, to face the consequences of it. I, fi- I find that... And so it's, it's Trevor Howard turning up, as you said earlier... And he, he has such authority that he's able to walk into the midst of them and stop what's going on. Um, even even Charles is there and he, he tries to do something, but he's just beaten down and restrained and has to turn yeah. away from what they're doing because he he wants to do something. Even after everything that's happened, he wants to help her, but he can't. And and again, it's a you know, it's a it's a horrifying moment but we see very little and that makes it again that puts it all in our heads Mm. about what's going on and we see her shaking and just scared and actually the thing of Charles going and getting her a drink really underlines the kind of awfulness of it it's 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 so understated that it's that the awfulness and we linger on it afterwards that's that's we see very little but we stay on the effect of it Uh, I think it's very powerful um, and then, and then we've got the major with his last cigarette. Yes, he's he's given his cigarette case to Michael as a gift. 
Yeah. Um, and Michael, in return, took him to a part of the beach where uh, some unrecovered ordnance washed ashore, and it's dynamite. And actually, I noted that there is a moment where they appear to be limping in unison. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's something very odd. Again, that that sense of um, you know hidden fortress was what that that's that's the bit that made me go, oh, is that is that conscious? Is that unconscious? Is that uh, a steel? Um, it's perhaps drawing a connection between the characters as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they they've both courted Rosie's affection. Michael is unable to fulfil any of her needs really, but he he's nevertheless. It, it, I, I, I felt throughout the film that Michael is in love with her. Yes, yes, definitely. I, I also think there's something about... There's something about the nobility of damaged people, which is what Michael is from his disability, which is what the Major is from his shell shot. But also Robert Mitchum, and, you know, we immediately cut to the bit where he won't let on to people that he and Rosie have broken mm. up that he's you know that, that he's still protecting her even despite what she's done there's a that that kind of um i said earlier about the end of brief encounter where it looks like the husband knows what's been going on um there's that there's that nobility even when you've been wronged mm. um which i think is is a very david lean thing that's what you know that that, that kind of understated heroism of that sort of uh, behavior um and Michael shares his treasures with the Major, the, all the weapons that have come up. And you get the sunset. And again, that, that kind of beauty of it all. Um, but I must admit, when, when he, he throws the match and you get the explosion, that really made me jump. I was, I was, it's a proper suspenseful scene. Um, but I was kind of expecting it to be saved at the last minute. There is a connection to Lawrence of Arabia there, of course, the, the famous match cut near the beginning of Lawrence, where he blows out a match and it cuts to the setting sun, or the rising sun, rather. Here we cut from the setting sun to the lighting of a match. Yeah, yeah. Um, just before he dies. And his his death is actually done very cleverly. There's um, he, the lighting of the match, and then we cut to the next scene in um, the schoolhouse, and it's a few moments before we hear the dis- this distant explosion. So Dorian's last moments are uh, in private. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And again, out of remove. Yes. The following day, um, Rosie and uh, Charles are leaving town for the last time, and they walk through the town as the streets clear in front of them. And there are yeah yeah and even 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 though they're escaping it they can't escape it i think i think that's the thing they've got to they're walking through they've still got to face the consequences of it and there's 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 lots of things so so you know again that dignity of him saying take my arm um but also that weird thing where they stop at the pub that really weird conversation they have with leah mccain um uh, i never raised a fist to her rose they go oh well what a lovely relationship you had um just again all, all of that kind of uh, emotional backstory of it um and the noise of it the noise of the, the crowd the noise of the whistling and the jeering um is really haunting and we finish at the bus stop um 
And it's interesting because the film began with her chasing the umbrella and then she meets Robert Mitchum because she's chasing his hat and it's now her hat that blows off and exposes her. Um, and it's the first time, you know, that, that, we, that, that we get the sense of just what's been done to her. Um, and it's... And it's, 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 you know, they have this thing where, where Michael's very upset because she kisses him goodbye. But it's, it's Trevor Howard who really finishes on it. I, I said this before about uh, 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 his parting gift is the sense of doubt. That they don't know what the future holds for them. And that suggests that there might be some hope for them. Um, and that's really, you know, it, it's a really... Uh, uh, uncertain ending because you have no idea where it's going to go you kind of hope that they will sort things out but you know Lawrence of Arabia kind of ends with everything descending into chaos all of the efforts to come up with a peace treaty it ends up with him walking out of the arguments in the in the meeting room and stuff and I thought similarly this refuses to offer any kind of a certain ending or, or moral judgment on anything but because it's the priest who's giving that moral judgment, it feels like that is a moral judgment. It's a, it's a weird, um, it feels, I can't imagine any other character being able to make that ending feel so optimistic. Um, because he's, he's got this sort of moral certainty. For all he's saying, there's no moral certainty. There's no certainty. He's saying it from a position of moral mm. certainty. Um, but I, what I, what I find... There's no redress. There's no... Lawrence of Arabia and Zhivago, their leading characters, both, both Zhivago and Lawrence, have views on what is happening in history. What, they, have a, they have a part to play and they have a view on the historical events that they have been caught up in. And I don't think that happens here. And the result of that, rather sadly, is for all the melodrama plays out and has its moments and is interesting and, and whatever, I think it all feels a bit inconsequential in conclusion. Yes, I think that's, that's the problem, that we're at such a remove that, as, as you said, you know, this is taking place in one small part of a country far away from any notional front. And as a result, uh, a lot of the conflicts are in the abstract. World War One is an abstract concept in this film. We see it very, very briefly in one of Dorian's flashbacks. The, um, the, the Easter Rising and the Irish Rebellion consists of, you know, two men in a cart shooting a policeman. Mm-hmm. There's no sense of the, the reality intruding into this little bubble of a world. And it can make it very hard to invest emotionally in in conflicts like that if you're not seeing, if not the conflicts themselves, then their direct consequences. It all becomes a bit far away. Yeah, I just I just think it's it's a great shame because there's something really you get hints of it, as we've discussed, but it just doesn't for what there is here. It doesn't warrant three hours. No. Um, it's 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 not an epic story, but it's told a, in an epic scale, um, and that just I I just 
Yeah, it, I, I... It, it's it's like his instincts as a director got away from his instincts as a storyteller. Yes, yeah. Um, the film was surprisingly actually a hit when it came out. It was one of the ten biggest films in the US of 1970. Um, mm-hmm. But it received quite bad reviews, particularly in New York, where uh, the film critic Richard Schickel told Lean to his face that he thought the film was shit. Yeah, yeah. And that's probably the main trigger for Lean not making a film for another 14 years. Yeah, yeah. He spent some time in the late 70s and early 80s developing a new version of Mutiny on the Bounty, which was eventually filmed by Roger Donaldson with Mel Gibson Mm -hmm. and Anthony Hopkins. His last film, A Passage to India, came out in 1984 and I think was a moderate critical and commercial success. And then at the end of his life, he was developing a a version of Joseph Conrad's Nostromo, which um, apparently was only a few weeks from starting filming when uh, he died and the whole project was scrapped. And it, yeah, it ended up as a TV movie, didn't it? Yes, it was a, a BBC like um, co-production miniseries. Something that's yeah, yeah. around the mid-90s. Um, but having, having read a synopsis of that, I thought, this is very David Lean. <laughs> so I can understand yeah. why he was drawn to the material. But um, as, as his run of epics had gone, this was... This was not just the end of the road. This was the the barricade at the end of the road, and uh... yeah, and it's a great shame. It's a great shame, um, especially because you can see his you can see his influence on all sorts of you know epic cinema, you know big sci fi spectacles mm. and stuff. You know Star Wars and Dune and whatever else that have these wide vistas of space are are so much in his debt for, for this is how you do opulent scale and stuff. But, but also he's, um, you know, as, as I was saying earlier, things like this happy breed and stuff are so beautiful and so, so perfectly judged. But it, yeah, he, it, it, the, the scale of it just kind of outdid him. And it's a shame. It's a shame. Right, the problem about Ryan's Daughter is some of it is really very good. And I just think if it was a shorter film, you could condense it down and make it a more satisfying experience. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a pity, really. To go back on something we said earlier, or I said earlier, rather, um, there might be not enough movie in this movie, but there's, but there's too yeah. much film in this film. Thanks to Simon for making time for this recording. His recent work include Doctor Who Plays, Wicked Sisters, and Shadow of the Daleks, The Bookshop at the End of the World, both available from bigfinish.com or wherever fine audio dramas are sold. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Acast, with almost 80 episodes available, so please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time... You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Thank you.